I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy a megachurch, and I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. I'm Dave. I'm an occasional preacher, a Bible nerd, a movie buff, and believe it or not, I'm still an evangelical. You know, I'm not going to complain this time. I'll, I'll let you say it. It's fine. That's, that's a new reaction. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And uh, for this episode, we are going to dive into uh, what can be an intense topic, but is a topic of utmost importance in our world today. And, um, and we're going to solve it. Right? Well, I, I hope that it will be solved very okay. soon, but I, I, um, I'm not sure we can do that on a podcast, but hey, we will learn more about it for sure. We're going to talk about the Israeli-Palestine conflict on this episode. And for some of our listeners who hear that, you, you may say, well, this is a podcast about evangelical Christianity, and what role do evangelicals have to play in the Israeli and Palestinian conflict? And the answer, unfortunately, is they, they do have a role through uh, a theology, through a, a philosophy that a segment of evangelicals believe, and that has influenced how America has approached this conflict and the Israeli government in particular. So obviously, Zach and I are not experts on this topic, so we brought in some friends. So we have uh, two guests with us tonight. Our first guest is an adjunct um, professor at uh, North Park Theological Seminary and leads actual tours over to the Israeli-Palestine, uh, goes with a lot of pastors and a lot of church leaders to educate them on the conflict, uh, show them the area, have them meet uh, people there on the ground. He is also a peacemaker, and he his name is, uh, he's an ordained minister. Andrew Larson is on the show, and also joining him, uh, she is a volunteer with World Vision and helps out with the Syrian refugee crisis here in the Seattle area, Carrie Conklin Larson, uh, his wife. They are husband and wife. They are joining us on the show tonight to talk to us about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You guys, thanks for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's great. Your thoughts on evangelical Christianity, uh, your stories with it, maybe whether or not you still consider yourself an evangelical Christian. So um, I come from a, uh, I was born into uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church. So the word evangelical is still actually in the church name. Um, and I think gosh, dating from around 2000, that term, uh, though it was still something that I embraced, it was something that I became um, more and more um, uncomfortable with. And there's various issues, but this issue of uh, peacemaking and where the church, especially the evangelical church, is aligned with um, this conflict in Israel-Palestine, um, 
was a pivot for me. Been been to the region quite a bit. I was a, a volunteer in 2011 for three months uh, doing advocacy work and kind of uh, documenting human rights violations. And I didn't have the theological package or um, the, the tools really to deal with issues of injustice that I saw. And it was a real crisis. So um, that word evangelical still in at least the, the church that I serve, the denomination, um, but less and less enchanted with it. This is one of the issues. There's others as well. Um, I prefer to just talk about, um, and this may sound like the Sunday school answer, but I, I just prefer to talk mostly about Jesus and his teaching and seeking to, um, to follow him in, in life and then in how we live and express um, you know, our convictions about following Christ uh, without this church package. I think uh, more and more that church, at least the evangelical church has become more of a centered set. So it's like it, there's boundaries that are clear and I'm less and less comfortable with that. It's, it has to be, excuse me, a bounded set. I'm more of a centered set person where I focus on the, the primary anchor, the primary focus on Christ and all that other stuff. Um, <laughs> it's not up to me to figure out. Yeah, so you're referring to a bunch of beliefs, basically, that you have to assent to. And there's kind of a, in your perspective, a longer list. And it's harder to check all those boxes in order to be an evangelical. Amen. So peace, is peace just between me and God, or is it somehow involved in issues of reconciliation and racism? And, you know, there's a, there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that's on the, on the table today that um, we need to deal with and engage with. And my church tradition um, has not been adequate to that. Yeah. And you mentioned um, when you first started getting interested in the Israeli-Palestine conflict, you didn't have the tools to recognize justice and injustice and how to approach this issue. And would you say that is because of the segment of the evangelical church where we come from, where that's not really emphasized? You know, it, it's not emphasized of trying to solve these worldly problems. There's a huge emphasis on a spiritual reconciliation with God, which is good. And I, I agree with, but what's left off the table is reconciliation issues with our neighbors. And even outside of that, we're so centered on ourselves in this nation thinking mm -hmm. even bigger, how do we bring these justice issues to with other countries that even America has conflicts with yeah. and other, other countries we don't even really pay any attention to. Um, I could say a lot about that, but um, you want to hear from Carrie too, right? Who she is. Absolutely. Yes, Carrie, <laughs> would you like to share your story with evangelical Christianity? Uh, well, I grew up in a, a conservative, very conservative evangelical uh, church and family. And my family is still very conservative. What, what I would say I learned through, um, I guess, assimilation is that uh, you don't question the beliefs that you're uh, bound to or that you, you know, you get in the package when you go down uh, on Sunday and you don't, if you, if something is not sitting right or if there's dissonance, 
um, in your conscience or something just doesn't feel right, the the cliche of, well, you know, mm-hmm. God's ways are above our ways and, you know, we don't have to understand God because he's God and we're not. Um, yeah, the fact that it's so unsettling is just proof that, that it must be true because if we had written the Bible, we would write it uh, in, in accordance with everything well, we that, like. Yeah, that's, that's the <laughs> argument that is used too, but yeah. But we deny the the work of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit, and God gave us that voice. He He let He um, promised us uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit to guide and teach us all things, and that um, to follow that. And so we are taught, and I was really taught to just um, sear, you know, segregate my conscience from my beliefs, and. As I started working with uh, Syrian refugees, I was already going through some deconstruction because I had, you know, growing up with gay friends and, um, and then I, you know, of course, start thinking about all of the millions and billions of people who must be in hell just because they didn't have the opportunity to raise their hand and, and say the sinner's prayer, you know, whatever. Um, and I was questioning a lot of those things. And then I started working with uh, Syrian refugees and who are mostly Muslim. And I started to meet people that didn't believe like me, um, who had their own journey with God, who very much loved God and served him and um, counted on him, relied on him to get their them and their families to safety. Um, as refugees and credited God for all of that and who would pray for me, who would um, show love to me. And so that was a wrecking ball for what was left (laughs) of my, um, I guess, willingness to ignore, you know, what, what God was saying in my heart. Um, So I guess, you know, if on this topic of Israel-Palestine, that was one of those things that growing up, you just learned to support Israel no matter what. Um, if something was going on, you just got to support Israel. And I never knew anything about it. I didn't, I didn't know why. I didn't know um, what might be, what might I need to ignore to support Israel. Um, I didn't know that until I started learning more about the region and through my Arab friends and hearing more of the history. And so meeting Andy and, uh, of course, uh, starting to learn more um, from him and then going there was further confirmation. Seeing it for myself was just further confirmation that there's a whole lot of God that I didn't know anything about. There's a whole um, lot about God's people, all of you know humanity that I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I needed, I owed it to myself to um, put aside what I'd been told and just swallowed my whole life. I owed it to myself and others to... Um, ask questions and, and dig a little deeper. 
Yeah, I grew up uh, with, you know, my, my parents donated to Jews for Jesus, and they were always pretty obsessed with Israel. They went there a few times, and I, I think I kind of subconsciously maybe kind of chose to, like, not learn much about that, because mm -hmm. it seemed like even suggesting that the Palestinians had some right to this land it was sort of touching the third rail. Yeah. And... Sure. And I feel like I had this sense that evangelicals uh, care about our government's foreign policy being favorable to Israel because of the verse about those those who who stand by Israel, I will have my favor. And then they care about the end of the world coming through mm -hmm. through uh, Jerusalem, but even the idea of you being a peacemaker, like I wonder how many evangelicals think that there's a point to that or, or if they're just like, yep, yeah, they'll always be in conflict and then the world will end and everything will work out for the Christians. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I heard mm. growing. Uh, well, growing up and also when I got saved into a church at 14, which was called a dispensational church mm. and people would say, they've been fighting for thousands of years, you know, it's almost just a point of fate. It's like, what's, what's the point of even getting involved is people would have that attitude. But then there were, would be people at church that would say, you know, Israel is God's chosen people and all of the promises in the old Testament that they perceive or interpret that were not fulfilled in the old Testament, they would believe that God is still going to fulfill those with the nation of Israel at some future date. Mm -hmm. And that's why for people listening to our podcast who maybe are uh, not evangelicals and didn't really grow up in this movement, it may be interesting to find out that there's a segment of evangelicals who actually have a whole theology and philosophy that has influenced American political policy toward the Israel government. And, and that is to heavily favor the Israel government at the expense, as we'll talk more about tonight, of the mm -hmm. Palestinians. And just real briefly, that theology, again called dispensationalism, holds as a central tenet that Israel is a chosen people of God, and that is separate and distinct from the church. And they would say, you know, we're in the church age right now. Christ has died on the cross. Mm -hmm. He's instituted a new covenant. It's a different epoch of time because dispensationalism, dispensationalism believes that God's revelation is unfolding. And there's different segments of time where people are accountable to the information or the revelation that they receive. And, mm -hmm. But the key point is Israel and the church are distinct and different from each other. And so the belief of people like Pastor John Hagee down in Florida, uh, what you might call Zionist Christians, is a very favorable belief toward the Israeli government, mm. again, at the expense of uh, other people who live in the region. And has that been your experience as well, uh, Andrew or Carrie? Um, so I didn't grow up in a dispensational um, uh, immersed church. But um, that idea and some of that thinking was definitely embedded in um, kind of my upbringing. But in this sense, um, we were inherently pro-Israel. So it was kind of like, uh, Zach, what you were saying, you know, the initial Abrahamic covenant. If, if you bless God's people, you will be blessed. If you curse, 
or and somehow um, hurt God's people, you will also be hurt. So that was kind of the the framework for me and my upbringing. So I was I was pro-Israel, and um, gosh, there's so many little ramifications of that that you know we can talk about more in depth. But but the dispensational idea um, will um, sabotage peacemaking. So they they're really at odds because. Um, People who are looking at the calendar for f- fulfillment of prophecies would say that Israel, you know, the becoming of a state in 48 was part of God's sovereign plan. There's there's a lot behind all of that. And then subsequently, even now, so in current times, Jerusalem becoming, um, or the, the U.S. Embassy being moved to Jerusalem, we can talk more about that too, was just another step in the point. And, and so John Hagee and dispensational Christians or evangelicals would look at that and say, God is on the move. Things are happening the way they should. But what it does is, is that uh, um, there's a confusion of means and ends. And so the, the end that we need to get to this place so that, the, um, that Armageddon will happen or you know the, the second coming of Christ, it, all of the means by which we get there um, are are moot. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't for for those who subscribe to this. It doesn't really matter. And so the work of peacemaking, and the work of trying to do justice, and the work of talking about Palestinians and advocating for justice for them is like, well, that's silly to the dispensational mindset. It's like you're you're sabotaging God's march in history. And it, and it seems wild to hold at the same time the view that we love Israel, we want to take care of Israel, we want our policies to be pro-Israel so that we can have this cataclysmic event in which most Israelis will die. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> and well, mostly most people around the world will die as as many of them believe. But like you know, they, they would say, you know, Jews will get their final opportunity to accept or reject yeah. Uh, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, and if they don't, which one would assume Jews wouldn't, <laughs> right. uh, they would then I forget what they had, you know cast into the fiery pit or something. I forget. <laughs> yeah, Gehenna, Gehenna, which is actually yeah. a place outside of the uh, the old city of Jerusalem. We know where it is. We kind of right. like, oh, there's Gehenna. <laughs> um, <laughs> But one other important point, and this wasn't in my awareness until um, engaging Muslim communities, um, this theology um, puts the church in Israel, um, because there's an alliance here, on a crash course with the Muslim world, because um, we support Israel to such a point that um, the ultimate enemy to the realization of Israel becoming a formal you know, the place where God will, um, will God, you know, deliver the end <laughs> is, is against the, the legitimacy of Palestinians being there, of Muslims being there, of the Temple Mount. In fact, there's some Christian Zionists and Zionists who would just be the, the Jewish counterpart uh, believe that the temple will be rebuilt. And that means that the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock must be destroyed and that would be one of the holiest sites for muslims in the world that would be that would be a war yeah Yeah. right and what do you say um because obviously in our politics there's there's no nuance and it seems like people are into just quote-unquote 
owning people rather than having discussions about things. So obviously we're talking here about pro-Israel and being mm-hmm. for Israel's government. And there are segments of our political, well, just our political body right now that would say, if we're talking like that, we are being anti-Semitic. And obviously mm-hmm. I don't believe that to be the case, but how would you respond to someone who would make that accusation with saying, well, you're questioning Israel's government. Do you not like Jewish people? Yeah, that, that some form of anti-Zionism is conflated mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. called anti-Semitism. Absolutely. And there are actually laws um, being um, voted on and presented uh, in the, in the house of representatives um, in order to um, stop or in order to conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. That is definitely a problem (laughs) Mm. Uh, to, to equate the, the nation state of Israel with the Jewish people of Israel is that's just, that's not, an equal, um, not the same thing. It, it is not the same thing. And in Orthodox Jews, um, would align with us on this. And many of our activist friends, they say that that's, that's to be, to criticize the state, modern state of Israel is not anti-Semitic. Yeah. Me. Right. We have, we have Jewish friends who, um, vehemently disagree with that. Uh, we have Jewish friends who go to Palestine every year to help with olive harvest to say in not Palestine. in Palestine to 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 be present and say not in my name this will not be done in my name I am Jewish this is against my um the Judaism that I've been raised with this does not follow uh, the laws in the Torah hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong um but the term anti-Zionism uh that doesn't simply mean complete opposition to the existence of the country of Israel, um, but, but opposition to allowing Israel to expand its borders and take over uh, Palestinian land and, and for a lack of coexistence. It, it's, it's opposition to a, a one, a one state. Well, Zionism um, supports an ethnic state, an, an ethno-nationalistic state of Israel, where it is literally a, an apartheid system. Um, and so you have Zionism says there's an actual place where this ethnicity of people, this people with these religious beliefs must have all to themselves. And they have to be able to exclude everybody else that they don't want to be there that doesn't fit within that box. Um, there's no other country in the world that the international community would support in that. And, and if there were, um, Israel, Israel has not demonstrated that they um, care for uh, human rights of Palestinians. And we could, we could go through, we have a long list of things we could talk about where Palestinians, even in Israel, so there's a sizable um, Palestinian Israeli community. So in the part of Israel where Palestinians live, they're second class. So different um, legal system, different, different everything. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, as Carrie said, it's an apartheid state. 
Wow. And as you have traveled over there, what what have been some of the things you have seen and witnessed that that show that this is a modern day apartheid state? Well, um, first of all, there's the wall. So there's a wall that um, um, they started to build after the second Intifada around 2000 to um, separate the, the, the different geographical pieces of the land. And there's a green line. So there was a green line that was established by the international community to say, if in some day that um, these two states are able to coexist in the same piece of land, this will be their border. And it's called the green line. Uh, or the armistice line that was kind of decided, uh, determined in 67. Well, what Israel has done, so it's a 25 foot wall and they will go through um, this area. And I think 80% of it is actually built on the Palestinian side. So Rachel's tomb, which is, um, was, is traditionally in Bethlehem, um, they wanted Rachel's tomb for um, Israeli pilgrims. And um, so the wall goes and it made this curvature around Rachel's tomb to cut it off from the Palestinians. And um, you see this over and over and over again where the wall kind of cuts through. And right now, even today, it's cutting off the Northern part of the West Bank. So Ramallah and the, the parts that are up North in the Galilee region cutting that off from the southern part right at Jerusalem. So there's this, they're building a community, a settlement from uh, Jerusalem east all the way down to eventually touch Jericho. And that basically will then um, cut Palestine in two. And so basically it's, it's, it's just slicing up the whole, the whole piece of land. And physically, um, so the West Bank is, it, as Andy was saying, it's outside the green line, but it is militarily occupied by the state of Israel. And so they control movement of the people even within the West Bank. Um, Palestinian, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, the state who um, managed to stay in Israel proper during the ethnic cleansing and um, in the 30s or in 48, um, they don't have the same rights as Jewish people. So just in August of, ninth, of 2018, Israel passed a Jewish uh, nation. Jewish nation law. Jewish, nation, Jewish law. nation state law. I, I can't remember the exact name of it. That basically said that only Jewish people have their own um, self-determination in Israel. And mm -hmm. it's literally in, in the law right now, it passed. Um, then there's a, another class of, of Palestinians who can be residents of Jerusalem. That's kind of the next tier down. They can live there, but every year they have to prove that they actually live there. They have to provide receipts from uh, school utilities. tuition, utilities, rent, whatever it is that they pay their bills. Otherwise, they'll lose their right to be there if they're if they go too long without um, proving residency. Then in the West Bank, which is occupied by Israel, um, there's actually a separate set of courts for Palestinians. So um, Israelis who or Jewish people who live in illegal Jewish settlements 
in the in the West Bank. So illegal by international standards, but legal in terms of Israel. Well, they actually in their own court don't allow. I mean, it's technically illegal in their own court, but they don't. They just don't pay attention to it. So Ben, the leader of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, just lets this happen. Yeah. Yes. Well, he promotes. Yeah. They promote, yes, proponent of financial it. incentive actually for for young people to to buy in these settlements, but they have a, a different. They have all of the same in time um, share benefits <laughs> as Israeli citizens do it, within Israel proper. They have all of that, and then the the military that is there occupying is required by Israel Israeli law to protect them at all costs. So even if they're aggressive against a Palestinian. If the Palestinian defends themselves, the military is charged to protect the Jewish people. Um, the Palestinians in the West Bank are—they um, are ruled by the military court, which is separate. Um, so things like um, guilty until proven innocent. So uh, child detentions. Um, mm-hmm. We have a good friend. We need to tell some stories. He was a student at Bethlehem Bible College. We met in 2018. Um, we were doing a, a combined tour or visit to Hebron, which is in the southern part of, of the West Bank and Palestine, with students from BBC North Park Theological Seminary and some pastors. It's one of the Palestinians, and uh, we took a liking to him. We just, you know, had this friendship that was developing. And then, uh, Carrie, why don't you tell what happened at the mosque and little bit more well we were waiting to to be granted entrance into the ibrahimi mosque um, and because the the guards noticed that there were palestinians or most likely palestinians in the group with they, us with us as part of the group um they stopped us and said well you know you guys can go on but these guys need to stay back so they they pulled them aside and our group said, no, we're not going to go without them. Um, but they took them aside. They had them t- take off their shirts and they started doing um, body searches. And this is out just in the open. In the open. And then when they were done, well, we were waiting. We weren't going to leave without them. So I think they knew that they. They couldn't, they didn't have as much leeway to the soldiers. The soldiers didn't have as much le- leeway to do um, whatever they wanted to because there wasn't there was an international um, audience there. So when they came back to our group and we were all denied entrance um, because of the Palestinians that were with us. Um, but when they came back, we noticed that our friend was just kind of uh, well, you can describe his appearance. I mean, he was. He was he was um, flushed. And yeah, flushed. Um, eyes uh, dilated. Just he, he, we could tell that he yeah. was um, he was experiencing some kind of trauma. And oh um, I'm not an expert on post trauma stuff, but he was presenting stuff that um, you could tell he was he was under deep deep stress. And you know they didn't they didn't do what they could have. But um, we then said, what's going on? Are you okay? And, and he told us um, af- at that point that when he was 12, um, he was uh, arrested in the middle of the night by soldiers and uh, taken to a military detention, to a military prison that wasn't even 
uh, known. It wasn't even registered. Like a black ops type? Yeah, yeah. It's a black it's site prison or as whatever. As a 12-year-old. And his, and his parents didn't know. They didn't, oh, my. They didn't tell oh, his parents my. where he was. Uh, they held him without charges. You don't, in military court, um, you, they don't have to press charges to hold someone indefinitely. So it's common practice to um, basically detain children. Um, boys, a lot, a lot of young, young boys. And he, he was beaten. Um, he was fed a, a, a piece of bread a day uh, for six months. Uh, and he, he had a, has an eye that, that is kind of, you know, he had his jawbone or his cheekbone was, was broken. And so he has permanent damage from that. Um, but he's he, 12, he was 12. He was 12. And I have an 11 year old son. I, I, I can't imagine. Crazy. Yeah. So he was finally released with, with no charges ever being filed, but he's never been the same. He, um, mm. he doesn't trust anyone. Um, yeah. And, and for the, you know, for the family, so the parent, were the parents ever told during the six month period where he was, or it's just no. their, their son yeah. disappeared for six months. Well, they, there's enough, uh, cases of this. And so they knew, they knew that he was in detention somewhere. Um, mm. and they just worry, you know, they just worry. So this is, this is a frequent um, occurrence. And so um, often the pretext will be they, the military has a video of so-and-so throwing a stone um, and they, or not, or not but they'll, they'll grab them and then they, they want them to rat on their friends. Can you tell us, can you give us names of people who are, um, you know, who are in protests or throwing stones or doing, doing other stuff? And so it's just this constant intimidation. And uh, we, we still get notes from him occasionally. He's, um, he's, he's coping, but we can tell that he's, he was damaged by, by that. Mm-hmm. And who wouldn't be? That's, that's just horrible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely is, horrible. Is, is, is that something that's, that's generally seen as being done uh, as, uh, as an act of, of, military aggression to some extent or or is it also like what we have over here with our levels of mass incarceration is Mm. it's tied so much to the industries that make money from Mm. private prisons and and you know everybody that makes a buck off of somebody being in jail over here um i i think it's control and intimidation and um it's like lynching it was in the Mm -hmm. Crow era Mm. yeah so Every young man knows that um, they could potentially be, um, yeah, um, taken into det- detention. In my time in Hebron, I was I was regularly at checkpoints and saw this happening all the time. So there'd be zip tied on on wrists for a young Palestinian who was a little mouthy to a guard going through a checkpoint in his land. So get get this is the some of the stuff that drives me crazy. It's Palestinian land to go from home to school, at least in Hebron, one of the places they had to go through checkpoints. Um, and they could detain them at any point for any pretext, any reason. And they all often created reasons. Um, so it just creates this, this fear of, the, of their presence among them and control. Yeah. 
So for the people out there listening to this podcast who may hear that story and feel your blood pressure rising, even after this 12-year-old kid gets out of this black site, off-the-books prison, there's no legal recourse. His family can't go get a lawyer and have any kind of success in, in going to court and proving that this Israeli group that was doing this is abusing people's human rights or civil rights in that sense. There's no recourse for it, right? There. Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's groups now, in fact, some of the, the best advocacy groups are um, um, Jewish groups. So Beth Salem um, does excellent work on researching these kinds of things. And uh, they will often um, uh, take a case like, like this, like our friend's case, and if there's enough evidence or enough, um, um, I, I'm not sure exactly what what creates the impetus, but but they will take some of these things to court and um, and push for for rights. But um, there's another organization called DCI. Um, they're attorneys who, when a parent knows their child's been taken, they will work to find the child. They'll try to find what prison they're in. And then they'll try to enforce uh, having the parents present. Um, they also survey all of the kids that have been deten uh, detained and they keep track. They keep numbers of children. So they report to the international community how many children each year are being detained, how many are abused. Um, yeah, I want to I want to be careful also, or just not careful so much, but um, point out that um, in our work, so there's an evolution that we go through. You you hear these things, you see these experiences, and you get you get really angry. You get um, there's there's emotions that arise, like you like you said, uh, uh, Dave. The the blood pressure goes up. But um, in our last trip in 18, 2018, one of our trips was to the, the border of Gaza. Um, but we got on a bus with a bunch of um, Israeli and Jewish activists who were going to protest the, the March of Return that was going on in those, those times. Hmm. And uh, some, of the, um, some of the courageous um, activists are actually Israelis. So we have a number of, of good friends who are we're able to make common cause with and who are um, trying to change, trying to change the climate. And our, our friend, when he was 12, you know, that was a number of years ago before um, some of the organizations that are um, tracking this stuff were around. So there is progress being made um, where possible. There are attempts to expel human rights organizations from the West Bank, and that has been happening. Uh, there is a definitely um, an intense um, focus on trying to, to remove um, human, the documentation of human rights violations. Even, even us. So I should say when we, we fly into Israel, I always wanna know, where are you traveling to? And we have to be very careful not to uh, say too much because they don't want us to see stuff in the West Bank. But what was beautiful about the, the buses full of, of Jewish activists when we went to the border near Gaza was their 
their countenance, their, um, mm. there was lightness, even though we were, it was a tough thing that we were doing. And it was, mm. there was a lot of consequences for many of them. They had a clear conscience and you could see it. It could was, it. you could feel okay. it. And just in the camaraderie and the, the compassion that they showed mm. was, it was just really inspiring. There was a story today that uh, the International Criminal Court, uh, mm. the prosecutors say uh, that they're going to open a formal investigation into war crimes in the Palestinian territories. I'm wondering if some of the things you were just describing were part of what they'd be investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they said uh, the the prosecutor had previously said that uh, uh, this would be about both sides in the conflict groups like Hamas and the Israeli Defense Forces, right. uh, yeah. things that both of them did. And it's interesting, I, I, I thought it was interesting in reading about this, that despite them saying, yep, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna look into this, look into both sides and try to be fair, the, uh, the Palestinian side was like, great. And Israel was like, this is absolutely outrageous. <laughs> um, they, they, they argued that the, the Hague has no authority to make such a decision. Uh, as Israel is not a member state and the Palestinian Authority isn't recognized as a solid, as a sovereign state, so so what do you make of this? I, we, on this podcast, we don't generally discuss breaking news. You know, we're not going to be releasing this tomorrow morning, uh, but this seems like uh, a change in something that's been a long time coming. Um, is that I, the sense I think that I had? Yeah, I think uh, your read is correct, and I think it's um, it's just a um, one of our Jewish activist friends um, has said this, um, um, Phyllis Benes, she's written some really great books. She said, it used to be political suicide to criticize Israel. She said, um, today it is not. You can criticize the state of Israel. She's Jewish now, she's Jewish saying this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and she hopes and she she feels that this, this this movement and kind of shift will one day be that it will be political suicide not to be able to criticize Israel. So things like this, the international court um, is trying to create more accountability structure because to this point, for the most part, um, the US in our role in the UN Security Council will veto anything that um, is trying to do this kind of thing, trying to create some kind of legal structure and accountability for um, war crimes, and um, I would I would say there's there's a lot there to research. There's a lot there to research and to discuss. But like you like you'd mentioned, um, Zach, they're also going to look at Hamas. You know some of the stuff that Hamas has done. So Jared Kushner didn't fix everything. Yeah. Like I like I've said, I'm not an expert in here. So, the moving of the embassy has that mm. already happened, or it was just announced it was going to happen. And it if happened. it's already happened, I'm interested in hearing because you said you haven't been there since 2018. Interested yeah. in hearing what you've heard from your 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 folks over there. 
yeah. about the changes they've seen or, the, or their thoughts on that? Well, um, we were there when it happened. So uh, we were oh, there. It's for been three... two years since that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we were there for, for three, three months, almost three months. We were based um, in the guest house of Bethlehem Bible College. Um, we did a lot of kind of tooling around and carry. That was Carrie's first trip. So a lot of learning and just connecting and learning. Um, but we were, um, there was a very tense week when that embassy was moved because it also coincided with what is called as Jerusalem Day. Um, in our second movie, Make Comments Not Walls, kind of features a part of that. We met um, an amazing uh, Jewish woman who was there protesting for um, Palestinian rights and against this um, further encroachment on Palestinian rights by the state of Israel. Um, but what it, what it did basically is um, to, up to this point, um, Jerusalem has always been um, neutral or at least in peace negotiations, it was said that that will be um, determined in final peace negoti nego negotiations. And the ideal would be that it would be a shared city. So it'd be the seat of Palestinian um, uh, a government, but also Israeli government. And then when, um, so all other embassies from around the world are based in Tel Aviv. The US embassy was in Tel Aviv. And um, to, just to respect that so that at one day um, it could be, you know, when we're sending our embassy to Jerusalem, we're saying, okay, Jerusalem is yours. It's all yours. Uh, there's no get, no discussion or conversation with the Palestinian counterpart in that process. So it foreclosed the, the possibility of um, that peace being determined in any future peace peace agreement. Well, and it was it was huge for the dispensationalist crowd, right? It 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 very much was played over here like like this is Mike Pompeo doing what evangelicals want. And it got it got me thinking, is there any other country that has policies toward Israel that are based in biblical prophecies? <laughs> like like does even Israel make any sort of laws based on the the non-jewish parts of the bible <laughs> like <laughs> it's just so well bizarre. brazil followed um the u.s in in 2018 and moving its embassy and there's two more central american countries that are in the process um, or at least saying that they will be doing that Interesting. So, um, it, yeah but we we took that lead for sure yeah my goodness so with the trump i mean the Trump administration may not have explicitly said this, but they, I mean, there's pretty much people in it that were like a one state type, because we always hear politicians over here talking about two state solution as kind of just political rhetoric, because I don't think a lot of Americans really understand or know about, uh, including, including myself, you know, I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs of a lot of the history, just kind of like major dates and stuff. And so the two state solution is kind of a, a political buzzword, mm -hmm. but the Trump administration is kind of just like Israel, right? One state. Correct. But um, uh, a one state that's um, apartheid, apartheid would, would have um, separate systems and legal system. Um, down to healthcare, everything um, for the Palestinians. 
So some some have actually talked about a one state that would be a, a truly democratic state, but Israel fears that because they would they would eventually be overwhelmed demographically. Yeah, you mentioned healthcare, and I was hearing comments when when Israel was talking about, oh, we've already vaccinated half the country. Oh, don't get me started. Yeah, well, well, I I saw Republican lawmakers getting mad at. Uh, uh, an SNL writer for saying, yep, and I bet I know which half <laughs> got the vaccine, the, not the Palestinian half. And uh, and sounds like the reality was, yeah, if you're Palestinian, it was incredibly difficult yeah. to, to, well, to get vaccinated. Uh, but uh, the Israelis have been vaccinated to a, a, a massive percentage. And the, the, world, the, right? the handful of Palestinians that have been allowed to be vaccinated are ones that work in Israel or in illegal Jewish settlements, because you need the workers. <laughs> but the there is a lot of outcry from the international community because Israel ha, is not stepping up to to vaccinate the population that they occupy, and that is. According to international law, that is what their responsibility is as the occupier. It just it shows in stark uh, reality um, that there's two systems and that people are suffering because of it. Well, also, I think that highlights the willingness of evangelicals and, and Christians who who own Matthew 25, who have scriptures after scriptures that that talk about caring for the poor and the orphan and the widow and uh, mm. loving your neighbor as yourself mm. but accept in this situation and that that is that accept kind of is in hand in hand with this concept of exceptionalism you know mm. the the means justifying the ends we mm. as christians are somehow able to turn our heads and look the other way if if injustice is happening on Israel's watch that, that that's interesting that that the idea of exceptionalism being the the connective thread between Americans mm. and Israel those that believe that that yeah god led our founders to this country helped them draft the constitution created a christian nation to forever be by and for christians mm-hmm. um and uh and that israel is god's chosen people um that that that's a connection i hadn't really thought of before but well, exceptionalism it, is so ingrained into christian nationalism it's it's one that i make and um it's it's a there's a parallel because uh that exceptionalism or the sense that Israel are God's chosen people, we also have adopted, but it's a little different language. We are the exceptional people, um, the city set on a hill. And they're both based on really truncated theologies that um, are compromised in my sense. And so it's, um, we find um, common cause, you know, the evangelical church, which buys into this idea of being exceptional and since you're exceptional and chosen by God to do special things, you can do it however you want. That to me is just invalidates the whole the whole thing. And yeah. the idea that um, Israel or the na- the people of Israel, God said he they he would bless the world through them. 
that they were chosen to bless, hmm. uh, chosen to bring the message that God is a good God and God is a God of love and wishes good for people, is, which is different than what, what the pagan re, uh, religions of that time hmm. um, believed. And as followers of Jesus, um, you know, there's verses about us being chosen and but it's chosen for something. It's chosen to bless others and, and move forward and the kingdom of God in a, in a way of blessing people and, and loving our neighbors and showing the world who God is. That's different than being exceptional in the sense of all the rules apply to everyone except for us. Yeah, and there's better ways to look at the theology too in scripture. And I think even being more faithful to the mm -hmm. Bible, whereas, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm personally at being more covenant theology based, which is kind of, mm -hmm. which is different than the dispensational type view. But there's no doubt in the Old Testament, Israel was a small nation where God chose to make himself known among this nation. And that is a, a beautiful thing in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And then when Jesus came and then you have the apostle Paul writing his epistles, the, the big idea in Romans, and, and there's a lot of scholars that look at Romans, not only as a, um, again, reconciliation with God, but also kind of this racial reconciliation, because uh, Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles, and he's writing about the Gentiles being grafted in as the people right. of God, and so that there is one people of God, we're all children of God, mm -hmm. Israeli and Palestinian, we all bear the image of God, and that is a, I think, more faithful to the text way to look at yeah. it, and it's also a healthier way to look at it in trying to discern and be honest about these news reports and not just holding up a government that is abusing people and, and using violence against another people group, but trying to discern where there is real wrong. And if that is coming from an actual government force that is mm. basically crushing people who are in an apartheid state, who are poor and kind of mm. under the boot of, a, of an oppressor. Absolutely. So I, I believe that even in the work of peacemaking, that the work um, is an extension of this whole what, what you were just saying, Dave, of the the idea of um, God reconciled us. We are now um, ambassadors of reconciliation. I mean, that's so Pauline, mm -hmm. but it's also um, what Jesus modeled and taught over and over. So um, the cross, and uh, this is where I still follow Jesus. The cross has, you know, the horizontal bar that sticks out. And if if the cross does not have that, it's just a stick in the ground which becomes a fence post, which you, you use to build a fence that separates you from the people that God calls you to be reconciled yeah. to. Us against them, the, the binary of good guys mm -hmm. and bad guys. And that's, that's even a framework to look at this whole conflict where this theology and these ideas, Israel is the good guys. They are the good guys, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And then these other people are the bad guys because you, you always hear people point out about Hamas and about bombings mm -hmm. and about launching mm -hmm. missiles. And I know you guys are obviously against violence and none of us like violence, but we have to look at the whole situation and we have to discern and ask questions, you know, look at multiple news sources, not just um, how our news media can even slant stories toward the Israeli government. Mm 
can I offer something? I know it's really, really late in the in the podcast, but oh yeah, no. one thing that I was just realizing at the beginning, I wasn't sure if we actually framed like what actually happened uh, when Israel became a nation. Hmm. Uh, the fact that the Palestinian people oh, please do yeah lived actually lived there first. They were there, and and there's a report that uh, was commissioned back in in I think it was the 30s. And it was a U.S. diplomat who was sent or to look at Palestine as a potential home for the Jewish people. And the letter he wrote back uh, said, the bride is beautiful, but is already uh, betrothed betrothed or, or married, promised, <laughs> or promised <laughs> to another. And they were saying, you know, there's there's people here. You can't just do, you know, you can't just send people to take over the land um so what what happened logistically or tactically was that when the the jewish people were survivors of the holocaust were needing a place to go um there were two things at work there was anti-semitism going on at the time in the sense that as andy you were saying earlier Mm. uh, europe didn't want them so they wanted to it send was the, what they called the Jewish problem, yeah. where where after in post Holocaust there's a shame on the Western world, the whole Western world. So then, by by choosing Palestine to create a place for the Jewish people and, and a refuge, a refuge, and so you know, as someone who mm. who supports refugees, my heart breaks. Um, and when we were over there, went to Yad Vashem and, and saw, you know, what happened in the Holocaust and, and understanding what it was that, that they had gone through and, and obviously traumatized and coming to, to Palestine at that time, traumatized, um, you know, massacred, angry, hurt, who knows, you know, all of the things that were going on. And fear, fear of being um, annihilated. Fear of being annihilated. So there's all those things at play. But in, in that um, effort to find a home, a whole other population then was displaced. So while creating a home for the Jewish people, over 750,000 Palestinians were um, expelled from Palestine, from their homes. And so now today we have a diaspora of Palestinian refugees in neighboring countries where they are not allowed to become citizens or have rights, um, who, who now are up to about 5 million refugees. In the, sur- the surrounding, the surrounding area. area. We visited a, one of those camps in 2018 in Jordan. Yeah. It's, it's been there since 48. My goodness. So, anyway, the, I, there's a great uh, video by um, by Jewish Voice for Peace. I don't know if you guys know about the organization. I haven't heard of them. No. Jewishvoiceforpeace.org. They're right. a great organization. They have a lot of wonderful resources. And they have a video. It's called Israel-Palestine 101. You can watch it. I highly recommend it. It's just a really short six-minute explanation of the history just of that occurrence of the Nakba or the founding we'll put that in the show notes that's uh that's really Mm -hmm. great thanks for that recommendation um as when i I know we were messaging earlier and uh um zach was messaging about the question of the difference between 
peacekeeping and mm. peacemaking mm. and and there being a distinction between the two do you, do you guys want to speak to that as far as um the difference yeah between the yeah and, I, and, I, and i'd like to to bring up that what i was thinking of within within that question because i really like how martin luther king talked about the different types of peace of being a negative peace uh negative peace uh uh being uh the absence of tension and a mm-hmm. positive peace being the presence of justice and in the letter from a birmingham jail he talked about the white moderate being more interested in keeping that negative peace mm-hmm. uh, rather than seeking the positive peace of justice yeah great great quote and let me add another um, phrase, Mitri Raheb, who's a Palestinian pastor and activist, he, he said that um, there's a difference between peace talking and peacemaking. And he characterizes a lot of the high level kind of government efforts for, to achieve a peace um, agreement is a lot of talk. And there on the ground, as they experience it, there's, there's no peace. And so he, he says, we need more peacemakers and less peace talkers. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, so um, Zach, the, 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 the contrast, and this is probably part of my own journey because I'm a nine on the Enneagram, if you know what that means. Uh, I hate conflict, and so I don't know why in the world I'm in this, but God has thrown me into it. And um, it's, 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 it's uh, personally transformative also because it's the the absence of conflict does not mean peace and that's the you know martin luther king said that quite well and we we can feel that so when we were when we go visit palestine there may not be um you know a, a military conflict every day but you just you just feel this this unease that's pervasive so we would walk the streets in bethlehem which is real close to the the wall the wall goes right through parts of bethlehem and they just feel this ominous presence and control of the state of Israel. They may not be uh, shot at on a daily basis, but um, they do not have peace. They do not have peace. There's not this, um, you know, the biblical concept of shalom, which is human flourishing and the big absence of that. And Carrie and I feel that, especially when we go to the shops. You, you feel the young men almost pleading with you to visit their shops and to to buy something because tourism is, um, you know, a trickle. And since COVID, it's been completely shut down. We, we don't honestly know. I, I don't know how. It's a miracle of God that people have food on their tables right now because the borders are closed. The Church of the Nativity has been closed. Um, tourism is the main lifeblood, the economic lifeblood for Bethlehem and and for the West Bank. Um, it's been devastating. I would I would just invite your listeners and, and both of you to consider uh, one of the things that we feel called to is um, going and being present, uh, not mm-hmm. so much to. Um, you know that we're going to bring peace or make peace, but. Um, the the Palestinian hospitality is famous and uh, the Palestinian church, which is a significant part of the issue and the challenge for us as Christians, they feel invisible. Um, 
Munthari Sak, who's, a, who's the dean of, um, academic dean of Bethlehem Bible College, who's just written a great book, The Other Side of the Wall. And part of his story constantly is that um, he's uninvited to conferences when they discover he's Palestinian. He's a, he's a great speaker. He, he's a world level speaker and, and a conference speaker. They just feel invisible. And so us taking groups, us going and visiting, um, listening and, and recognizing that they're there is huge. And, re- and paying respect to their humanity. They're human beings, just like us. They have Mm. the same inalienable rights given by God as we do. And it's a crime that we turn away. Yeah, it it makes me think of of how much movement there is on on the political right to to restrict the 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 growth of the population Mm. of Muslims in this country. Um, even you know, we got Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that they shouldn't be allowed to serve in Congress, and you, you've talked about how you've had many Muslim friendships develop uh, over there. But I'm I'm sure here in the states as well, um, I can think of a couple mosques fairly close to my house, um, but I've never I've never visited. Um, I'm I'm wondering if you have any hmm. advice for how to engage our Muslim neighbors, like. If, if it's a church of a different denomination that's still Protestant, I know enough to know, oh, yeah, you go Sunday morning, you're going to end up like shaking some people's hands and it's going to go like this or whatever. But I don't know if I can just show up to a mosque. Yeah. You know, I, like what's what's the ba- the basics for for how to engage my neighbors? <laughs> I mean, that's my main work, actually, is is uh, so I, I help churches and communities engage their Muslim neighbors. So I, I go to the mosque a lot. But yeah, Friday is the day when they pray. So you can show up uninvited. You can. Um, um, that's a big part of what I do is I, I help people kind of um, overcome their fears. I, I make introductions. I go and visit. I have a lot of friendships with uh, Muslim imams in the Seattle area here, but also um, do, do this work uh, across the country. And um, Boy, it's again, maybe similar to that thing of being seen, especially when there's um, a rise in Islamophobia within our country. If you're just friendly and a good neighbor and you know you wanna hear their story, that goes a long ways to um, uh, developing this relationship and, and, and creating the conditions for peace. Um, you'll, you'll be impacted. Um, but we could do another whole podcast on that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about uh, books, articles, films, other than the one that you already recommended uh, that we could put in the show notes that people can um, read and engage with to help them better understand this conflict, help them better mm-hmm. understand where the Palestinians are at and, and what's happening there, and just things along this topic that people can read and engage in. Well, uh, Muthari Sak, the, he's our friend. He's a pastor at the Bethlehem Christmas Lutheran Evangelical Church. Boy, if you think you had enough names in your church, they have <laughs> a lot. And he also teaches. He's the, acad- the academic dean at Bethlehem Bible College. Um, IVP has just published his book, The Other Side of the Wall, 
It's a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope. And he is, he's formidable. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that uh, lay people can read. It's not, it's not just a deep theological uh, discussion. Um, I use as a text in the class I teach, um, Palestine Speaks. It's written by um, a team of, of authors. It's, it's narratives of life under the occupation. Of course, um, Edward Said is classic. He, anything he has written, the end of the peace process, it's a, it's a great story. He's a Palestinian, was a Palestinian Christian. Um, he focuses on Oslo, especially. Um, Mark Braverman is a great um, friend and Jewish activist too. He's written um, about his own journey as a, as a Jewish man of coming and making peace with Palestine and kind of finding himself. He's written a book called A Wall in Jerusalem, which is quite good. <clears throat> and more in the evangelical mold, uh, Gary Burge has written a number of titles. Um, and I, I like his book, Jesus in the Land, which is excellent, um, really quite good. Well, okay, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, we, we loved having you here, even though this is an intense and sad topic, um, human rights violations going on in our world. Can I, can I just end with one quick comment? There's a, there's a word in Arabic, it's called samud. Mm. And one thing that we learned um, in Palestine firsthand is that the, it means to withstand or forbear. And resist. And, and it really symbolizes the resilience of the Palestinian mm. people. So um, mm. I know this is a hard topic and, and I, I don't want to in any way diminish the strength and the bravery and the grace of the Palestinian people who are living under the boot because they mm. are incredibly strong, incredibly brave, hospitable, loving people. We have always been welcomed and fed and fed and fed. And they, they want to <laughs> constantly, uh, they want to know when we're coming back. So, yeah. Go visit. Go visit <laughs> yeah. Palestine. And if we can't visit, uh, what food should we try cooking at home? Oh, maklube. maklube. I, I, like shawar I like shawarma. And oh, hummus. sure, yeah. And, and hummus. There's a cookbook called the Jerusalem Cookbook. Yeah. There's a lot of recipes in there. Yeah, but right. it's 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 written by it's a story of reconciliation because mm -hmm. a Palestinian and an Israeli um, meet each other as in the diaspora. They become friends and they they write this cookbook together. So it's oh, quite a story. Sweet. It's a great story. That's a that's a really unique concept for a cookbook. Yeah been wonderful to talk to you and, and see you guys again. Uh, thank you so much for your time and being on the show. And hopefully uh, no, November, that'll work out for you. Inshallah. That means uh, God, God willing. Thank you. Good to be with you both. Nice meeting thank you. you. Thanks for what you're doing. Well, that was nice, Dave. Um, I, I feel like I overpromised at the beginning. We, we didn't resolve the issue we didn't we didn't figure yeah. out we had even less time than jared kushner so um, that's true I, an hour and 15 minutes is uh not a lot of time but uh no. i think you know it seemed to be a more empathetic conversation than maybe jared kushner 
might have had. But I don't know. I wasn't involved in those conversations that Mr. Kushner had. No, but that 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 was really nice. It was it was really great to um get a a a fleshed out human view of of the lives of people in that area. It's it's an issue with so much weight because you know, what what can I do to help this this terrible situation, you know, that this, this war and conflict that, that has been going on for decades that has cost countless lives. And, you know, as we were talking about in the Palestinian territory, how many children lives have been lost that the world will never know. It's just people who live in poverty, who live in such a desperate situation. And um, it, it's really sad. And it, you know, I'm not doing much about it other than recording a podcast and maybe reading a few articles here and there. But uh, I think it would be very enlightening to try and travel there, maybe even with Andrew at some point next couple of years and learn more and listen more, I think is important for all of us to do. Once, once COVID is over, I'm going to have to look into visiting one of the local mosques. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a rating. And if you could, a review in Apple Podcasts as that helps other people find our show. You can find Zach and I on Twitter. I'm at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. You can listen to Zach's music and everything that he has going on in that arena by going to muzak.bandcamp.com. And you can read my occasional blogging and writing, if you so desire, at www.dangerousholt.wordpress.com. Music and logo by the one and only Zach. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming down to the BCW. Uh, remember that the podcast is free. Uh, but you still need to tie a 10%.